It's good to see you. We couldn't get our little uh, head, head thing, so I've got to stay close to the microphone uh, today. I'm going to read a scripture, do a little few things today. Uh, here's a scripture, Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I get to talk about the second coming of Jesus today. You know, here at Ozark Christian College, there are a few things that you can count on. Few things that are almost certainties. <laughs> a few things that you know are probably going to happen with almost certainty, after all. And I asked, for, I asked some of my students for some of these, so I'll blame them. You can almost be certain that uh, Bob Whitty is going to be handing out a few Bob Bucks <laughs> in his ancient uh, history of ancient Israel class. You can be certain of that. And he's going to holler a lot. <laughs> uh, you, you can almost be certain of that. Uh, you can almost be certain that uh, Gary Zustiak, Dr. Zeus, is going to be wearing one of his 50,000 Hawaiian shirts to class. <laughs> And he's going to be distributing at least 50,000 handouts to his students uh, as the class goes on. You can be almost certain that Mark Scott is going to say, that'll preach, at least sometime during his homiletics class today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Here's one I got from a student. You can be almost be certain that John Kerr is going to carry his massive Hebrew-English polyglot Bible to class almost every day <laughs> while wearing his blue button-up. <laughs> so, <laughs> probably true. Here's, here's one I like. You can be, <laughs> I really like this one. Um, and the faculty will like this, students might not get it. Uh, you can be almost certain that Dean Doug Aldrich is going to find a way sometime this year to preach his Roll the World sermon <laughs> to that rare audience on planet Earth who may not have yet heard it. So, so that's going to happen sometime this year. You can be almost certain that President Proctor will produce... <laughs> a procedure to ensure that every point in every presentation and proclamation maintains perfect proportion in the pronunciation of each positive point. Probably going to, it's probably going to happen. And you can be reasonably certain that a certain aging professor on campus is going to end every lecture by wishing that his students have a great and glorious day. There we go, there we go. <laughs> there we go. But of all the potential certainties that uh, life presents us with, of all the potential possible events in the future affairs of man, only one of them stands out as absolutely one hundred percent certain and that is that Jesus is coming back that's the one absolute certainty now 
They asked me to pre preach on the second coming. I, I said, where is Shane Wood? This is his area. But he's on sabbatical, so the lot has fallen to me. Now, there are a lot of loony ideas out there floating around the Christian world concerning the second coming. People want to argue about the timing. People want to argue about the exact correct interpretation of certain biblical material in Daniel and Revelation. What's literal? What's metaphorical? What's symbolic? And a thousand other issues that people want to argue about. Well, I'm going to make a simple suggestion as we get into the sermon today. That God did not put the doctrine of the second coming of Christ in the Bible to give Christians something to argue about for the last 2,000 years. That's not what it's in there for. He gave us this greatest of promises to encourage us. And so in our brief time together, I want to look at some of the Bible's basic encouraging teaching concerning the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've got five points, but I have a handout that if you want it, I can make it available to you. It's a top ten list, top ten things that we can know for certain about the second coming. But if I preached a ten-point sermon We'd be here a really long time. So I pared it down to five. And uh, so all of God's people said, amen. So, uh, so here we go. Number one certainty that we can know about the second coming is this that I've been talking about. The second coming is certain. You know, you can get odds in Las Vegas or from bookies on just about anything and everything. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy gave his famous speech in which he said, we chose to go to the moon by the end of the decade and return and do the other thing, and I can't do a very good JFK, but he, he promised, he promised the nation and the world that America would, in 1962, would find a way to land a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Now, I've read scientists uh, uh, discussion of the uh, of the great uh, the great project to get a man to the moon, and most scientists said that when JFK made that speech in 1962, nobody at NASA had the slightest idea how in the world they would make that happen. In 1964, a British uh, fellow by the name of David Threffel went to his bookie. He was a guy that placed bets. And he said, what kind of odds would you give me on whether or not the Americans can get a man to the moon before the end of the decade? And the bookie was a guy by the name of William Hill. And he, he said, I will give you a thousand to one odds that it can't be done. And so uh, David uh, pulled out his uh, pocketbook and uh, he, gave, uh, he gave the bookie 10 British pounds. Now that would, uh, British pounds sterling, that would be about 170 bucks in today's, in today's uh, uh, money. Uh, and the bookie said uh, that uh, I'll give you 1,001 odds for any man, woman, or child from any nation on earth being on the moon or any other planet or star or heavenly body of comparable distance uh, from the earth that it won't happen not just by the end of the decade. It won't happen uh, before January of 1971. And 1,001 odds. Wow. After Apollo 11 um, landed on the moon and uh, Armstrong uttered those famous words, the eagle had landed, the bookie William Hill, 
handed on British television, live, <laughs> to uh, Mr. David a check for 10,010 British pounds, the equivalent of about $175,000 today. And uh, that wasn't the worst of it. Uh, he also took bets from other people and ended up paying out that day nearly $1 million. <laughs> he later went on to say, I'm probably the only person on planet Earth that they did not enjoy one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> but hey, gang, of all of the future events of Earth's history, here it is, the most certain of all is this one fact, Jesus Christ is coming again. In fact, it is one of the most common teachings in all of the New Testament. If we just read passages on the second coming from the New Testament in our sermon today, the sermon wouldn't get over with until after lunch. There is a bunch of material. In fact, the New Testament talks about the, let's put the next, New Testament talks about the second coming with three basic phrases. Sometimes it's called his appearing. Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.14, talking to Timothy about to keep uh, this command without spot or blame. How long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the second coming spoken of as his revelation. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, talking about God will give relief to you who are troubled and to us who are well. And when is this going to happen? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is, here it is, revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Sometimes the second coming is referred to simply as his coming. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, May he, God, strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. I, I'm a baseball fan, and uh, I can remember watching Pete Rose play. I can remember watching Pete Rose play. More hits than any other person in the history of, uh, of Major League Baseball, 4,256 hits. But in uh, August of 1989, the absolutely certain and sure Hall of Famer, greatest, one of the greatest hitters that's ever lived, was officially banned forever from Major League Baseball uh, for betting on baseball games. He, uh, he became coach of uh, several uh, major league teams and he was known to be on his phone placing bets on the game that was taking place in the dugout during the game. Well, in the locker room of every major league uh, locker room, since uh, the early 1900s in the Black Sox scandal, there is a sign that says, Anyone who bets on any aspect of baseball will be banned for life from the game. And Pete Rose is banned. Of course, there's a big debate if you're a sports fan. Should the Hall of Fame make, uh, make an allowance? Should they, they make an allowance, make an exception, 
and allow Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. So here's the big, here's the big question. Will Pete Rose get into the Hall of Fame? And the answer is maybe, but don't bet on it. Thank you, I'll be here all week. <laughs> but hey guys, I'm not, in, I'm not encouraging wagering, but if you were going to wager on something, here's something that you can take to the bank. Jesus is coming back. Uh, certainty number two. Second coming is going to be unmistakable. Unmistakable. Now, not, not every individual and every last Christian group has always agreed on this, and yet it seems, it seems obvious from reading the scripture. For instance, Charles Taze Russell, one of the founders of the Jehovah's Witness movement, declared that all human government would cease to exist in October of 1914 as Jesus would return to earth and begin his earthly rule and kingdom. Well, I don't know if you noticed it, but... Jesus did not come back to earth in October of 1914. There was a big war going on in Europe at the time, but that wasn't the second coming of Jesus. Uh, when asked about what went wrong with the prediction, later on, uh, Russell and some of his associates said, well, Jesus did return to earth in October of 1914, but it was a spiritual reality which could not be expected to be seen with our visible eyes. How convenient, how convenient. In the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Jesuit scholar Louis de Alascar put forth a biblical interpretation that's, that's called Praetorism today that states that every prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus' return was completely fulfilled in the events of the first century, particularly surrounding 70 A.D., and the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. But with all, uh, with all due respect to my uh, praetorist friends, and you can find that uh, in Roman Catholic circles today and, in a, and in a, even in a few Protestant circles, with all due respect to my praetorist friends, there's just no way to fit the New Testament predictions of the second coming into the events which have already occurred either in the first century or in any of the 20th centuries since the initial coming of Christ. There's going to be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. First, the Bible says the second coming is going to be visible. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. For as lightning that comes from the east and is visible to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then uh, will appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, in case I've missed something, that has not occurred yet. <laughs> Remember what Jesus, uh, Jesus is Spending 40 days. Oh, I can't do this. I've got to stay here. All right. I don't need the microphone. I can fill the place with my voice, but I'll, I'll, I'll humor the guys up in the booth. All right. Um, <laughs> you remember Jesus after 40 days after his resurrections, teaching the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the kingdom of God. He ascends to heaven. The disciples are standing there staring up into the clouds and uh, angels appear beside them. And you remember what they said. Men of Galilee, 
What are you standing here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go. Second coming of Jesus is going to be visible. Think of that. What an amazing thought that the very first thing that blind people are going to see is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible also says the second coming is going to be audible. It's going to be audible. Not only does the Bible say it's visible, it's also audible. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead will be, uh, in Christ will be raised first. Listen to John, uh, Jesus in John 5. Don't be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There's three distinct sounds here. There's the sound of Jesus' own voice. There's the sound of the voice of the archangel, probably Michael since he's the only archangel uh, mentioned in scripture, and the trumpet call of God. Think about it. The first sound that deaf people will hear is the sound of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number three, second coming, and boy, I wish more people would get this one. The second coming is going to be impossible to predict. Now, throughout church history, People have mistakenly attempted to predict an accurate date for the second coming of Jesus, normally to their eternal historical shame. Let me give you some examples. In 1831, William Miller uh, and uh, those who followed him, they were called Millerites, uh, he began to preach that the world would come to an end sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. He said it would be the end of the world as we know it. And later on, R.E.M. wrote a song about that, I think. But anyway, he attracted so many followers, over 100,000 people, most of them sold their homes, quit their jobs, and just as the, the last day of that time period all gathered in a huge field waiting for the second coming. And guess what? It didn't happen. And they were discredited. In fact, they were ridiculed publicly. Millerites in public, uh, the historical record said little children would run up to them after the date had passed and said, did you get your ticket stamped <laughs> to go up? <laughs> in our own day, in the last uh, 10 years or so, very famous guy out on the West Coast, Harold Camping, publicly predicted the end of the world at, at least 12 different times. He based his interpretation on biblical numerology, which uh, Brother John Carroll explained to you uh, someday. Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure he teaches that in his Old Testament classes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he predicted... Uh, based on 7,000 years from the end of the flood, however he figured that out, I'm not sure, that the world would end May 21st, 2011. I remember seeing this on the CBS Evening News. Well, the day came and went. Nothing happened. 
He reevaluated his date in 2011 and says, oh, no, 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 I got it wrong. I got it wrong. It's going to be October 21st. October 21st, 2011. Well, you know what? As far as I know, nothing significant happened that day other than it was a travel day between games two and three of the World Series when my Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers for their 11th <laughs> national championship. But I just had to throw that in. But other than that... <laughs> Nothing significant happened on October 21st, 2011. <laughs> After all such efforts have proven and will continue to prove false, the Bible is quite clear that the exact timing of the second coming is going to be completely unpredictable. Look at what uh, Jesus said himself. Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son in his own earthly dispensation, but only the Father. What is it about that that people don't understand today? Look into what Jesus said, but understand this in telling a parable. If the owner of a house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have left, let, wouldn't have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Why can't people take Jesus at his word? I experienced it as a young man in my first ministry in, in uh, Palmyra, Illinois. It was spring revival, my very first uh, attempt at administrating revival meeting. We had a singing group come in, a special preacher in the uh, spring of uh, 1977. My wife, uh, who I forgot to announce, my wife is here today, and my wonderful wife down here, Carol. She's tolerated me for 44 years, and so she, she, gets the, uh, she gets the award for the day. But Carol will remember this. Uh, uh, we, uh, we had the guy, and he was a great guy and a very good uh, you know, southern gospel singing. Back in those days, that was the thing. And, uh, but anyway, he got up on two different nights, and he preached in 1977 that Jesus was coming back in 1982. He had charts, he had graphs, and I was every, every time, I was sliding further and further under the pew in front of me going, it is going to take me eight months to undo this particular message. And I was trying to be nice, you know, and so after the service, you know, Kate went up to him and, uh, and I said, uh, I said uh, Brother Maynard, I said, uh, you know, what do you do with Jesus teaching that no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man is going to come. And this fellow looked me straight in the eye and he said, but it doesn't say anything about the day or the year or the month or the year. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. The second coming is going to be impossible to predict. It might happen before I'm done preaching. It might happen 10,000 years from now. Our job is to not worry about when it's going to happen. Our job is to get busy and do what Jesus told us to be doing. Now, number four, number four. Second coming is going to be a time of judgment and separation. When Christ returns, the Bible is clear that a final separation is going to be made between those who have accepted Christ and those who have not accepted Christ. I want to talk about the parable. Jesus explains this in the parable of the weeds. And I want you to be understanding. It's not, it's not the parable of the weed, all right? 
No, it's the parable of the weeds in, in the New Testament. I just figured you'd need a little comic relief at this stage of the, the sermon. Uh, you know, the, you've, you've heard this parable. It's, it's one of the only two parables that Jesus actually explains in the New Testament. He explains the parable of the sower and he explains the parable of the weeds. And the parable's interesting. He said, there's a sower, he goes out and he sows his seed. And then as the, uh, and as the th seed begins to grow, the wheat seed, the servants recognize, oh, my lands, there's weeds growing up all over the place in the field. Because in the parable, unbeknownst to the landowner, in the middle of the night, an enemy came and threw a bunch of cuckleberry seeds or whatever out into the, out into the wheat. And, uh, and the servants say, hey, should we go out and, and pull the weeds out of the wheat field? And the, the master says, no, don't do that because you might pull up some of, the, uh, some of the good grain. Let's wait until harvest time. We'll cut it all down and uh, we'll We'll bind up the weeds and burn them in the fire, and then we'll gather the wheat into the barns. Well, here's Jesus. The disciples said, what does that mean? Here's Jesus' interpretation, and uh, we put it up on the board. Then he left the crowd. He went into his house. The disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. So Jesus is the sower. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. And there you have the interpretation. On the final day, there is going to be separation. All of those who have never embraced the love and kindness of God in Jesus Christ are going to be gathered and get what they have desired, removal from God's presence for all of eternity. And yet those who have embraced the love and forgiveness of Christ are going to be gathered into the eternal kingdom. The second coming is going to be a time of separation and judgment. Here are two names you don't know. <laughs> uh, here's the first, Robert Ingersoll. Would you, would you know that name? Robert Ingersoll, famous agnostic lawyer, orator, politician. He died in about 1899. He's probably remembered as being one of the most outspoken agnostics of his day. Here's another name that unless you're a homiletic student, you probably won't recognize. Phillips Brooks, put an S on both of those. Phillips Brooks. Uh, probably known for writing one of the greatest uh, exposés on the concept of preaching in his lectures on preaching. But for, for you, you'd probably recognize him as the, as the one who produced that wonderful Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Brooks and uh, Ingersoll both lived in, uh, in uh, the New England area and they knew each other. And they had had many, many discussions. Near the end of his life, Phillips Brooks became very, very ill. He was in his home. He could no longer, he was no longer even receiving members of his own congregation. He felt so badly. But Ingersoll came one day to pay his last respects. And amazingly, the, the household uh, uh, helpers said, Oh, yes, Brother Brooks has said, If you come, we are to take you right up to his bed bedroom. And so they took... Ingersoll up to see the dying preacher and uh, Ingersoll says, I don't, I don't quite understand. You know, you're, you're not even seeing good friends of yours, members of your congregation, but you're, 
You're willing to see me. And Brooks uh, had these words to say, by, by the grace of Christ, I'm firmly expecting to see all the members of my congregation again in heaven. However, unless you've had a change of heart, I knew that this might be the last time I would ever have a chance to visit with you. The second coming of Christ is going to lead to, a, to separation and judgment. And then lastly, the second coming of Christ is going to be glorious. I, I brought a little trinket with me. A little trinket. It's on, uh, on the stand in, uh, in, a, in my uh, office. My office up here is my study office. My office at home is my sports memorabilia office. <laughs> um, I'm a baseball fan and, a, and have been a lifelong fan of uh, the St. Louis Cardinals as uh, my favorite team. Hey, this year things didn't work out like we'd hoped, but hey, a fan is a fan. Um, but when I was a younger man, 28 years of age. October 20th, 1982. It was my privilege to actually get to go to a seventh game of the World Series. Went to the seventh game of the World Series. Had a standing room only ticket. But by the eighth inning, I was sitting in the aisle about uh, eight rows behind the dugout. <laughs> and... Uh, the game didn't go very well. Cardinals were behind at first. I, I began thinking, oh my lands, am I going to watch my team lose the seventh game of the World Series? But in the middle innings, things turned around, and uh, the Cardinals got the lead. And then Bruce Souter, that great pitcher, former Cub, who was then a Cardinal, came into the game, struck out Gorman Thomas, the final batter, and the Crowd, old Bush Stadium went absolutely conquers. About 5,000 screaming fans. They actually, you could actually do this back then. 5,000 screaming fans went onto the field going crazy. And that is dirt from the first base pit of the game that night. Sometimes, when nobody's in my office, I'll just take that off of there. <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll even hug it. <laughs> it's a great memory. But gang, for, for all of us, we've got something to look forward to. <laughs> Far better than a stupid baseball game. For Christians, the most glorious day of all is going to be the final day when Christ returns. All wrongs will be made right. All the wrongs that have been done to us and all the wrongs we've done to others made right. Sin will be abolished forever. Jesus will be universally recognized as Lord. His people will spend eternity with him. No wonder the Apostle Paul refers to the second coming of Christ as the blessed hope. You want to know what it's going to look like? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen, gang, on that day, he's going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. There'll be no longer any death or any mourning or any crying or any pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who's seated on the throne said, listen, Listen, he says, I'm making all things new. And then he said, write this down, John. Write this down. For these words are faithful. And they're true. It's no accident that when the Apostle Paul was near the end of his life, languishing in the Mamertime prison, close to the, the Agora, the old uh, Greek uh, marketplace in Rome, that his thoughts turned to a particular event. Gone were the uh, days of freedom of travel. Most of his friends had forsaken him and some had forsaken the faith and left him alone. Only Luke was there to bring him his daily meals. He'd been judged and was awaiting execution. What was on his mind? What was on his mind as he was waiting? Well, it wasn't the sword of the executioner. You remember what Paul said. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. There is for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not to me only, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. 